Welcome to this session uh, on mapping out a strategy, uh, talking about both diagnostic tools and potential therapies for GA. Those of you who attended Subspecialty Day know that this might be particularly relevant given uh, the new information that we've heard. So my name is uh, Vas Asad. I'm pleased to be chairing this program along with Yasha Modi. Uh, and I'm, an, I'm at uh, Doheny Institute UCLA. Yasha is uh, at, uh, at NYU in New York. And we're both very pleased and very lucky to be joined by our good friend Carolyn Bommel, who's a professor of ophthalmology at Tufts in Boston. Uh, and so we're going to be taking you through uh, to uh, through this program. Uh, and I do want to emphasize this is meant. Oh, these are our our, our disclosures. Uh, and, uh, and really uh, also to mention that the, this is a continuing medica medical education event. The, the planners um, uh, from Evolve don't have any other disclosures. Uh, I do want to highlight um, some of the important learning objectives of this uh, program. But again, just to quickly highlight the learning objectives, uh, really we want you to be able to, at the end of this program, be able to summarize some information that's, I think, important for patients related to the prevalence of AMD and GA uh, to really define the burden of the illness uh, and really be able to explain the pathogenesis of GA and describe how we might be able to actually diagnose and monitor patients with GA and also understand a little bit about about uh, factors that might influence progression, because obviously if we have therapeutics, then we'll probably want to be selecting the right patients, and we'll talk about that a bit with the cases as well. Uh, and of course, uh, again, uh, one of the reasons we're here is because we're in this, in this era, we're approaching the precipice of having therapies for GA, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about those things and as well as some things in the pipeline. So with that, I'm going to turn uh, uh, over the program to our co-chair and first presenter, Yasha Modi. Yasha is very kind to give this presentation as his voice is failing, so in yeah. case he can't, then we'll try to pick it, pick it up. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've had a wonderful 24 hours in Chicago meeting old friends and talking too much, and uh, so this is the consequences of that. So uh, I'm at NYU. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about geographic atrophy, the prevalence, and the disease burden. So, you know, this is a case that we all see in our clinical practice. And the images on the left and the images on the right are separated by two years. And this is somebody who comes in and they say that they have progressive vision loss in the left eye over two years. But in 2018 and 2020, the vision is 2040. But she states her vision is lousy. And when you look at the near-infrared imaging, what you see is that there is considerable growth of the geographic atrophy as highlighted by the hyper-reflective changes corresponding to the geographic atrophy. So this sort of highlights a little bit about the inadequacy of visual acuity. We'll go into that in more detail. But if we think about uh, the burden of macular degeneration in our community, this is something that is projected to increase linearly as our aging population continues. And so from the ARED study, we have broken down macular degeneration into four classical stages, and this is getting challenged. And Vasad is going to talk a little bit about that uh, and maybe how we can use higher level imaging to help us reconsider this classification. But in the beginning, in category one, we have no macular degeneration. These may be few small drusen, which we can see in age-related changes. It could also be early disease, where we see it in maybe medium to large-sized drusen, 
but no pigmentary changes. And then as the intermediate category, this is really where all of our patients lie, right? This is something that can extend for decades where we have either one large drusen, and as time goes on, we get progressive pigmentary changes. So just remember, pigmentary changes is a feature of chronicity. And then the end stages that we always think about is geographic atrophy and neovascular macular degeneration. So what we know is that about everyone will eventually progress to atrophy if you give them enough time, and that may represent 30% of patients progressing to frank geographic atrophy. And geographic atrophy is loss of the RPE in the chorea capillaris, and the image that you're seeing here on the left is a fundus autofluorescence image. And one way that I like to identify that relative to that of an FA is that the disc and the vessels are always dark. And what you're seeing here in the dark area is the area of RPE and choriocapillaris loss, but then you see this idea of perilesional hyperautofluorescence. So those of you who are at the academy today probably heard about that being an entrance criteria to clinical studies. And so these patients develop dense irreversible scotomas, uh, and now geographic atrophy, just because of our aging patient population, has become a considerable cause of legal blindness in North America, of being about 20% of patients. And the risk factors are all things that we know about, but perhaps we overlook them too often in clinic, and that is there are some things that we can't control. We can't control our age. We can't control our race, but we certainly can control smoking and diet, um, and in fact, I can't stress enough the importance of smoking, uh, where I've really, especially as we've sort of had more and more conversations about geographic atrophy, this is something that I'm addressing on a regular basis with my patients, and you know, one study showed that individuals who've had a 40-pack year history of smoking has a three-and-a-half increased risk of geographic atrophy. And so, you know, when we think about GA, this is very much age-dependent. So kind of in the beginning, uh, you know, the rate of geographic atrophy or the, or the prevalence of GA is very, very low in our 60-year-olds. So if you're seeing somebody with GA, they're 58 years old, you may really want to think about something else. Maybe, you know, we've talked about masqueraders like pentose and polysulfate uh, dystrophy. We've talked about pattern dystrophies. We really want to be thinking about something else. But as our population naturally gets a bit older, we see this sort of exponential increase in geographic atrophy, where over 20% of our patients over 90 years of age have geographic atrophy. So, and of course, this has huge implications. It affects our ability to do fun things like play sports, to read, uh, but also it has some uh, difficulties that can result in severe morbidity, the ability to do simple household chores, and then even to take care of ourselves in the late stages. And this ultimately can translate to a mortality deficit. So and when we think about the impact of this on quality of life, it's kind of astounding to think that those with moderate to severe disease fall somewhere in the quality of life of somebody who's on dialysis. So that's a pretty remarkable loss of function and the ability to exist in our society. And so one of the major things, especially in our suburban communities, is the ability to drive. And 50% of patients with geographic atrophy, this is not patients who have foveal involving GA, this is all patients with GA, say that they're not comfortable to drive during the day. And almost 90% say that they're not confident to drive at night. 
And then over the course of a year, 80% of those patients in just one year reported that their, uh, their confidence went down. So this has huge implications on autonomy and independence. And so I showed you that case in the beginning where patients were 2040 to start, they stayed at 2040 vision, but they were really, really unhappy with the quality of their vision. And that's really because best corrected visual acuity only accounts for foveation. So if the central fovea is unaffected, we're not going to be reflecting that very much in terms of their best corrected visual acuity. Now, VAS uh, has been uh, hugely prolific in the literature in geographic atrophy as it pertains to imaging, but other groups have looked at something called low-luminance visual acuity and something called the low-luminance deficit. We'll get into that in a little bit. People have looked at reading speeds, microperimetry, and then, of course, just patients. What do they report in terms of their visual symptoms? So low luminance testing is born out of the fact that GA patients have a significant impairment in dimly lit environments. So low luminance visual acuity basically is trying to simulate that by placing a neutral density filter over their eye and asking them to read the exact same ETDRS chart. Now, the deficit is between where they are in terms of their normal visual acuity and their low luminance visual acuity. And this deficit has been correlated with subsequent vision loss in all stages of patients with geographic atrophy. And so, you know, one other thing that we sort of oftentimes, it's really, really hard to quantitate this, but is reading speed. And you can imagine how frustrating it would be to get older and to have your reading speed drop because you're not able to see the entirety of the sentence because we're using some of our parafoveal fixation. And so this can be quantitated in research studies and has been demonstrated to decrease in individuals with extrafoveal geographic atrophy. Now, microperimetry, uh, do any of you guys use microperimetry, by the way, in clinical practice? Well, I use it in clinical studies. Oh. Um, I have used it in clinical practice. And what I find is that, um, like so many of the tests that we have, when your vision's good, it's easy for patients to yep. do the test. But as their vision gets worse, it's harder and it's a little bit more frustrating for patients to sit through. But um, I do think it has a lot of promise in quantifying GA and some of the changes. Vas? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the challenge of the test is it's time-consuming. So many of us who, I mean, we, we, we generally use it for trials, but we do use it for some patients. Sometimes we all see patients, they come in, they complain of some unexplained vision loss, a scotoma, which you can't see much of anything, and we sometimes use it as a tool to map it out. It can be very helpful for then pinpointing where we might right. want to, to evaluate. But, uh, but yeah, I do think that, you know, and maybe after you go through this, I have another comment about microperimetry, Yasha, but I think it's everyone, who, anyone who's not using it, probably something we're all going to have to get more familiar with in this right. next era of therapeutics. And, and, you know, we've learned a lot from research studies that have used this tool, and I think it also tells us a little bit about the deficits in geographic atrophy. Well, first they can map out the functional deficit and you can then correlate that with the fundus photo, the autofluorescence, the near infrared imaging. Uh, but it also can tell you some degree about the depth of the imaging by varying the stimulus intensity. And then you can say how much of a visual uh, of a deficit are they experiencing in the paracentral regions? I like to think of it like a glaucoma visual field on yep. the macula. <laughs> Yeah. Makes it a little bit easier to kind of think about the sensitivity. Yeah, and how many of you guys actually conduct uh, VFQ25s? Now, this is certainly something we can just do in the waiting room, right? Like as the patients are being, uh, you know, are being dilated, getting imaging. Um, do any of you guys do visual um, field function questionnaires? 
Uh, we, we don't, again, we don't accept in the context of a, a trial, and these, these questions are interesting. You can, I mean, it's nice that there's an example of everyone can see some of the kinds of questions we ask, and these are really this, uh, those uh, questions that you seem to be very important in terms of what does this really mean for someone's life. The problem with this, these tests, I guess, like the NEI VFQ25 is that they haven't been quote unquote validated. So for example, uh, a regulatory agency to approve a treatment based on one of these outcomes, they need certain criteria to be met, which we don't have the time to go into, uh, for something to be considered to be validated. And so far, none of these are. So I think it's helpful information. Um, uh, but uh, but you know beyond that uh, it's it's not uh, I haven't, we haven't been able to find a good justification to actually do it in practice. But but you know when you look at the questions and some of them are so simple and then you'll read the question you'll be like oh my gosh yes a patient told me that yes they have difficulty seeing their food they have difficulty driving through the big dig in Boston common you know going into the tunnel you're like oh I've heard that um, I think the reason we don't ask it as much is because not validated, we don't know how to quantify it, and we don't have any treatment for Absolutely. it yet, but it's certainly the symptoms that we hear that patients tell us, and, and you know, it's a little bit depressing for the patients and, and for us because we feel so helpless. Yeah, you yeah, know, absolutely. And I think uh, I wanted to bring these up because I think it sort of highlights the sort of inadequacies of what we're doing in our clinical practice to really understand the true deficits. And I think, you know, one way is if we know this exists, then perhaps we can be a bit more objective about that. And Voss is going to talk a little bit about imaging and ways in which we can utilize this information and then sort of apply that to imaging, which is a much more objective function. So when we talk about geographic you know, this all starts with sort of the hallmark lesion in macular degeneration, which is drusen. And this is a really complex structure. We see it on the OCT literally every day. And, uh, you know, we sort of say, oh, well, this is involved in uh, basically it's waste product. There's lipid. There's protein-rich debris. Uh, but when we look at it at a much more granular level, there's a whole lot of components that constitute drusen. And some of the complement factor factors factors have been isolated from drusen, and this is sort of why we're all here today is because we're looking at, well, what are the genetics, what is involved in uh, drusen, and one of the sort of like pathways all goes towards complement inhibition or complement factors. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this. So this is a classical example. Here's your standard fundus photo, and what you're seeing on the left is essentially an area of geographic atrophy. Notice the pigmentary changes, a feature of chronicity, and then there's Drusen around it. And then over time, that geographic atrophy grows. And then on the right side, it's now coalesced to involve the phobia. And the drusen is now much more mineralized in nature. So this is something that we see. We hate to see it. And we really don't have anything to stop this progression. Because even though we tell patients to take their, you know, their, their, their AREDs, two vitamins, uh, what we know is that that only lowers the reduction of progressing to the exudative form of disease, but really doesn't alter their progression risk in terms terms of geographic atrophy. And so when we're thinking about our patients in practice, of course, we always want to think about their age. We want to think about their gender. We know females have higher prevalence of um, uh, macular degeneration as well as geographic atrophy. Of course, we can't change our race. But when we think about some ocular factors, believe it or not, aphakia, longstanding aphakia uh, can be associated with it because of increased UV exposure, lighter colored irides, uh, and then hereditary factors if they have multiple individuals in their family 
family with macular degeneration, and then cardiovascular risk and cigarette smoking. Actually, there was a really cool paper by Ted Smith, who was one of the first individuals to highlight that individuals with what's called subretinal drusenoid deposits have higher risk of cardiovascular and renal disease independent of any other factors, independent of their blood pressure, independent of their cholesterol. So it's kind of interesting to think that one form, one phenotype of macular degeneration can even tell us a little bit about their cardiovascular disease. And then in terms of environmental factors, obviously for individuals who are at high altitude or at the equator, have high cumulative uh, UV exposure and high fat diets. Now we think about. So can, can you go back just yeah, one for, for one sure. second? I was just uh, thinking that uh, that one of the things that that uh, that you know uh, is worth uh, talk maybe expanding on a little bit is this whole light exposure thing, uh, which is patients often ask, right? So patients ask, like, should I be wearing sunglasses or things of that sort? And uh, and that's where you know the data is obviously a little bit more mm-hmm. controversial about that, but it kind of makes sense that probably um, excessive light exposure wouldn't be a good thing because we know that especially with shorter wavelength light, like you had the ultraviolet mm-hmm. or even blue. Uh, but uh, but probably one of the best studies was the Chesapeake Bay Waterman study, which uh, these longshoremen, I guess they have a lot of time outdoors and they seem to have a higher incidents. And there's been another study, Schick and colleagues had published another uh, paper. You might imagine it's kind of hard to really quantify light exposure to do these kinds of studies very precisely, so you don't know. But I I generally tell patients, you know, again, um, you know, when you're out in the sun, try to remember to wear sunglasses because I figure what's the harm. The only exception might be that, you know, they have to make a little bit of a judgment. Some some of these patients, they do poorly in dim light. So obviously you don't want them to be wearing sunglasses when it's sort of Of dusty or something of that sort because then they really would have trouble seeing. Yeah, and especially uh, the other thing is, you know, it's a lot sunnier and UV radiation is much stronger in L.A. compared to New York so and, and Boston. So, you know, I think it also depends a lot on, on, on where you are as well. And so, you know, when we think about the risk factors, obviously we can't alter our age. But look, smoking has an incredible risk. That is something that we really need to be talking to our patients about the value of quitting smoking. And this is something where, you know, it's nice when you're, uh, you know, I think I have the joy of being an academic center where I have primary care doctors who are then connected to addiction specialists and I have the ability to get them to see individuals but I really would recommend reaching out to your primary care docs to see how can we work on smoking cessation programs with some of our patients. Now this is sort of where I think things get fun and interesting in terms of being a retina specialist or an ophthalmologist in general but when you think about sort of the risk factors for advanced AMD. I love looking at images and I love thinking about this. And, you know, can really just start with your clinical examination. And, you know, one of the things that I really highlight is do they have pigment or do they not, right? That's like sort of like the, when we think about intermediate macular degeneration, we can break that down into the earlier stages of intermediate diseases versus the later stages. And pigmentation helps me understand risk here. Also looking for uh, subretinal drusen deposits. Now, that's easiest to see on the near-infrared imaging, which uh, Vasada will go over. Uh, and then also fellow eye status. A geographic atrophy in one eye yields a higher risk of geographic atrophy in the other eye. And OCT biomarkers, when we see these hyper-reflective spots or foci above the drusen, and those are increased risk factors, when we see changes in the context of the drusen, when there's hyper-reflectivity or hyper-reflectivity, that can be associated with increased risk of uh, uh, drusen collapse and atrophy, and then subretinal drusenoid deposits. 
when we think about these risk factors, of course, just cl sort of easy clinical things to look for. Larger GA lesions, they're going to grow faster. And more lesions, multifocal lesions, are going to grow faster. And, uh, you know, in order to get enrolled in any of our GA studies, fundus autofluorescence was the requirement to be enrolled. So how many of you guys use fundus autofluorescence in your practice when you're evaluating patients with geographic atrophy? So, yeah, so, so I use it, but the truth is that I don't necessarily have it at all of my, my offices. So, so I, I love it when I have it, and if I don't have it, I think then we can certainly use other imaging modalities like OCT to help us. But diffuse or banded function patterns of, uh, um, of hyper-autofluorescence was associated with increased progression. So the easiest way, forget all the fancy terms of autofluorescence, but more hyper-autofluorescence on your fundus autofluorescence camera is associated with higher rates of progression. And so the current hypothesis for GA pathophysiology is really, really complex. But if we break it down into its simplistic parts, we have probably some form of genetic predisposition. There's an environmental exposure, and then there's some level of oxidative stress that's intrinsic to us. And then this results collectively in complement deposition, and then either that is, uh, sort of causes sort of breakdown of the blood RPE barrier, and then the end mark, uh, sort of end stages of this is atrophy, and when that coalesces, we get geographic atrophy. And so the complement system, we've heard this over and over again for literally years. And what we don't realize maybe is that this is the natural innate part of our immune system and it protects us from microorganisms. So it's an incredibly important part of who we are. Uh, but oftentimes this gets dysregulated in patients with macular degeneration and potentially it may be systemic, it may be local, but realize we probably don't want to suppress it tremendously at a systemic level. Uh, and when we think about active Activation, activation from this can occur from a whole host of different pathways. So there are three totally separate pathways that we probably all learned from school, uh, one being the classical pathway. This is when we have sort of antigen-antibody complexes that sort of trigger the complement pathway. And there's a few key terms in this pathway that we want to be thinking of. One is that there's C3, which is one component of the complement pathway, and this sort of breaks down, and then we end up with C5, and then this breaks down a little bit further, all triggering degrees of inflammation, and this all ends up with what's called MAC, which is the final complex that will ultimately fight off whatever pathogen is in our system. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a pathogen in our system. It could really be anything that dysregulates our immune system. So this could be just like basically the sugars or polysaccharides on microorganisms, or this could be any sort of nonspecific spontaneous activation. And so this really, really complicated thing that we learned in medical school, uh, we can kind of distill down to just a few critical parts to understand what the, uh, the emphasis is. And we're talking about this because complement activation is found in drusen, both C3 and C5 have been seen to accumulate in Drusen as well as in the sub-RPE space. And I remember when at that first paper, the complement factor H variant increases, I was in medical school at Yale, and I remember meeting one of the first authors, because this paper also occurred at Yale, and I really didn't think anything of it, you know, outside of the fact that it published really well. 
So you had this incredible science paper. Uh, and I didn't really think about this at this window of time because, you know, what we learned is that there is so many different genetic loci associated with AMD. And this really only accounts for about half of our risk factors. But some of those have been complement factor H, which we know has been previously studied, complement factor I, C3, C9. Uh, but really all these variants, basically, if they were increasing activation or decreasing inactivation, they were associated with uh, AMD. And so two have really come to the forefront, and you've probably heard now conversations about should we genetically test for macular degeneration? And, you know, just uh, the AAO, the ASRS have both put out statements that we don't routinely genetically test patients for macular degeneration. But that whole conversation was spurred on by the fact that we have complement factor H and ARMS2, which are independently associated with complement activation and macular degeneration. So if we kind of put this all together, we have a, a much more complex cascade that is really rich in bi um, biology, and we can literally spend hours uh, talking about this. But they do result in the two end-stage components of our macular degeneration, which is cortical vascularization as well as geographic atrophy. So I'll turn it over back to you, Buzz. Great. Thank, thanks very much, Josh. That was a really great summary. And first of all, any questions from our audience? Thank you for the presentation. My questions, you mentioned that uh, women are more affected by this disease. The incidence is more. And it's very uh, age-related disease. So it's the reason why women are more affected, because they uh, live longer than men? Or the, is there any genetical reason for that? You want me to take that? Oh, I was, I was, I was going to say, yeah, so, so there's been a lot of speculation on potential reasons, uh, and, uh, and you know, obviously, you know, longevity is, is potentially an issue, uh, but, uh, but people have also speculated whether it could be hormonal or other differences. So the real answer is it's not known, uh, and longevity is probably only one of the reasons, probably can't fully explain the difference. You know, I think um, there are other things, other inflammatory things that do happen more in women, collagen vascular diseases, and I don't know if we know yet why that is. Some people have thought maybe women uh, are more likely to come to the doctor, or seek health care. There's so many different factors, smoking, so I think that um, we'll get more information about that. But the one thing that I really like that, that you talked about was when you showed the difference with the age with the patients that were 85 and how the massive increase in geographic atrophy when patients were over 90. And I think that's really important takeaway. When I started practicing, patients didn't live past 75, 80, and this wasn't as much of a problem. And now the lifespan of both men, lucky guys, and uh, women is so much longer, and people, people are living longer, and this is definitely a larger issue for our patients. And there's one other question that came from online, which is about the difference between dry MD and geographic atrophy. And I think you yeah. have one. To just explain us, Jeff. Yeah, very you know, so I think this is the difficulty where some colloquial terminology overlaps with very highly specific terminology. And so geographic atrophy is specifically an area of coalesced RPE and choriocapillaris loss with very distinct margins between the area of loss and the area of preservation. And what we're realizing now is that that's more of a continuum on the margins, and we've learned that from OCT. Now, 
Now, dry AMD represents the entirety of the spectrum from when you're diagnosed with early macular degeneration to intermediate macular degeneration to advanced age, uh, uh, atrophic macular degeneration. So the colloquial terms are obviously dry AMD and then uh, exuded macular or wet AMD. And wet AMD, we can kind of break down now even further in the modern era into neovascular non-exudative and neovascular exudative disease. And, and also something that's become apparent with time and maybe with some of our anti-VEGF treatments is that patients don't have, if they have advanced AMD, they may not just have geographic atrophy or choroidal neovascularization. You can actually have both and you can treat one, you can treat choroidal neovascularization but have geographic atrophy progress and then get recurrent geographic atrophy so it's um it's not uh, one or one way or the other exactly and that's why i, I think the the terms the dry and wet amd we still use them but they're somewhat antiquated they don't really reflect our current thinking about the disease process uh, in fact when we teach our trainees now we say amd is a bit disease that begins you know the you know when you have medium drusen um or related extracellular rp deposits and and then it progresses to atrophy uh is the end stage Okay, so the atrophy is the end stage of the disease, and, ne and neovascularization is an interval event that can occur in some patients, which might be the body's attempt to try to rescue the retina. So when I explain wet AMD to patients or the development of neovascularization, I say, well, it was a good idea, but it was poorly executed. Uh, and then they can understand that and understand that just because you develop neovascularization doesn't mean you're not going to progress to atrophy. And just because you develop atrophy doesn't mean that the body can't make another attempt to try to try to save other parts. So that's something uh, to, um, uh, to um, uh, th keep in mind. Okay, so, um, so I'm going to go ahead. I think I'm going to go on um, then with the next uh, um, the section, uh, and we want to talk a little bit more about diagnosing um, atrophy. Again, we think we're all going to have to become very good at this now, um, given uh, the changing landscape of, of therapeutics. So, so I want to just spend a few minutes on that uh, and cover a little bit about the imaging studies that we use uh, for diagnosing atrophy. And Yasha, I think, already did a good job of setting me up for this section. Uh, when you think about, you know, um, uh, uh, our, our various imaging modalities for assessing atrophy. Uh, actually, uh, there are a whole host of different technologies one could potentially use, and there was a, a, a paper that we had written a, a few years ago summarizing the pluses and minuses of all these different technologies ranging from color imaging. Color is nice because it kind of reflects what we see when we examine the patient to autofluorescence to near-infrared reflectance imaging and even some uh, more uh, fancy kind of approaches like multicolor imaging which is kind of like uh, col color imaging but using a confocal imaging device with maybe a subset of the wavelengths maybe just uh, uh, green and blue or, or, or uh, red green depending on the particular device and of course OCT. Uh, and when we think about uh, color photography, though, this is really the historical gold standard for making the diagnosis. And there is a definition that was established from many decades of trials that you should be aware of, GA being defined by its sharply demarcated borders uh, with, uh, uh, of an area of depigmentation. And there's increased visibility of the chordal vessels, as I think this, this uh, case nicely illustrates. Uh, the challenge, though, is that that definition, while quite helpful, 
doesn't always um, allow us to make the diagnosis in every case in the real world because sometimes, uh, you know, the contrast might just not be good enough for us to detect the border. I'm showing a couple of cases where these are both eyes with geographic atrophy, but it's hard to tell exactly where the atrophy begins and ends. Uh, and so that's where other imaging approaches, I think, can be helpful. Uh, and this is where, for example, fundus autofluorescence and OCT, I think, can play a real role. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about fundus autofluorescence, which Yasha um, introduced a moment ago. So again, uh, with fundus autofluorescence imaging, uh, the atrophy, I think, is much easier to see. I'll go back again. Here's a patient where I think we all recognize, yes, I can see the critical vessels better there. It seems to be depigmented. But boy, the borders aren't that easy to appreciate, at least with monoscopic viewing. Now, if I could view this in 3D, maybe if I'm examining the patient, uh, I might be able to perceive the borders. But you can see with autofluorescence, of course, uh, we get much better contrast. And autofluorescence, of course, is primarily derived in the, in the, in the fundus uh, from uh, lipofuscin RP cells. So you can imagine if the RP cells die, then these areas are going to be darkened. So that's a very uh, valuable um, uh, tool that we have for enhancing the contrast. And so it's not surprising, you know, all these different GA trials that you guys are hearing the data from now report out, uh, enlargement of the atrophy on these um, on this diagnostic has been a key outcome measure because it can be relied, uh, excuse me, it can be measured reliably, and that's what you want in the context of a clinical trial. Well, what about OCT? Where does that fit in? Well, there are a couple of reasons why I think OCT is uh, quite important because, you, you know, we we sort of raised our hands. A few of you raised your hands when Yash asked the question, how many are you using autofluorescence? Uh, and the reality is that, yeah, we all use autofluorescence, but maybe not routinely for AMD uh, uh, patients. And maybe some of us, you know, uh, we don't have access to the device in some of our offices and the like. Uh, so that's one problem. So availability is one issue. But the other issue, of course, with autofluorescence is that it's, you know, I mean, first of all, let me ask a question. How many of you had autofluorescence imaging done to you? It's tough. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so nobody in the audience raised their hand. I'm sorry to the audio, online audience, I can't have you raise your hands to, to see, but I, uh, you know, it's going to be a small number. Uh, I've had it done to me, and it, it's very uncomfortable. And can you imagine a patient who already has a disease affecting their retina? It's perhaps even more uh, uncomfortable. There's even people who are worried about potential toxicity from, from repeated blue light exposure. So that's where OCT certainly uh, can be of benefit. Uh, and we see on OCT when you lose the uh, overlying retinal layers and the RPE, You'll have increased penetration of light into the deeper layers, in, in this case to the choroid. There's a very specific term we use to describe this phenomenon called hypertransmission, so get used to that, that term. Uh, and if you'd imagine if you, uh, in, you know, OCT, of course, is three-dimensional data. Here's one B-scan. But imagine if you take that B-scan and, and you say, well, at each of those points along that A-scan, I'm going to add up the intensities. In areas where there's hypertransmission, there's a lot of bright pixels, right? And so those areas, if you take an on-FOS image, essentially by adding up the pixel intensities uh, along the A-scan, uh, atrophy is going to appear brighter. Uh, and so uh, these areas of atrophy can be identified by these areas of hypertransmission. You can imagine that if you get a dense volume OCT, lots of B-scans, yeah, you can look at this in an on-FOS direction and visualize the atrophy. And in fact, uh, we and others have shown a good correlation between the measurement of atrophy and OCT and autofluorescence. I want to highlight they're correlated, but it doesn't mean you're exactly measuring the same thing. And that's one of the concerns about using OCT is that it may not be specific enough. So every bit of hypertransmission that you see, is that already atrophy? Now, some people believe that it is. If you have hypertransmission, Phil Rosenfeld gave a beautiful lecture, the Scapins lecture, uh, and, uh, and, and highlighted that 
that you know areas of hypertransmission that are large they don't really go away so it probably is already atrophy but you're not sure sometimes when you see these little bits of hypertransmission uh, you know how can you tell and that's where you know we we, we had a, a consensus meeting where we had a group of experts who are interested in this area imaging specialists reading center types uh, to look at a series of cases like this where you saw a patient who nobody would think would have atrophy and then clearly evolved to atrophy uh, on color imaging or what have you looked at a series after series of these cases to try to identify what were the features on OCT that seemed to correlate with the development of atrophy and came up with this definition of, of atrophy. And they, you know, again, when you're describing findings in OCT, sometimes it's very easy. Uh, instead of trying, you, you, you can become like, you know, or I guess maybe it's the lazy way out, I should say. Instead of trying to come up with a fancy, uh, clever term, you just say, well, I'm just going to describe what I see. And so we said, well, it's complete RP and outer retinal atrophy. That's kind of what we see on OCT. And so we came up with that long word, and no one wants to say long words in ophthalmology because we're going fast between patients, and we say Cerora then, right? Because it's a nice abbreviation for that. Well, can I tell you something? I like this definition because I, I prefer having a name that describes the pathology. It's easier to think about. You think about it, you look at the OCT, it makes sense rather than having, you know, some sort of description of the appear of the, like, that correlates it to food or something. I think this was very clever. Good job. I got something right. Okay. <laughs> good news. Good so. job. So, Yash, did you have a comment, Yash, about that? No. No, no, I totally agree. I think it's incredibly valuable. So, so I do want to perseverate on this a bit because, you know, when we talk about, we, we think all of us are going to have to become very facile identifying atrophy in our practices and then monitoring patients uh, now going for in the future. So, and many of us are going to use OCT as our tool. So that's why one of the reasons we want to cover it in this program. Uh, and so, so hypertransmission is the key feature. As I said, some people, when you hear them lecture, they'll like, they'll make it sound like that's the only feature. Uh, and certainly, um, uh, you know, it is probably the most important, but the reason there are two other features there is because you want to make sure why you're seeing the hypertransmission, right? And you want to confirm that it's because of loss of the overlying R PE and, and, and some uh, impairment of the overlying photoreceptors. And that's, those are the other two components of that definition that you can read on the slide. The other, other caveat that I would add is that uh, we set a, um, a size requirement of 250 microns, in one, one part because, as has been published, that those patients tend to have persistence of that. It doesn't disappear. You know it's going to be there. Uh, so that gives you confidence as atrophy. But also, you know, that's what we thought that we could measure reliably. So it doesn't mean that if you have a tinier area that it's not bad and that patient can't see there. It's just that this was the limit that we thought we can repeatedly be confident that atrophy was present, hence that 250 micron. Uh, so, Fos, quick question. How do you implement this in your clinic, like in your daily so, practice? Yeah, so this, this is my preferred way of identifying uh, atrophy aside from examination. I still believe in patient examination. I'm not sure everyone uh, in our practice does anymore because they feel like, well, I can get everything out of imaging, but I like to examine my patients. I think it matters to the patients, too, and it's, it can be helpful correlation. Uh, but aside from examination, yeah, I primarily use OCT to make this diagnosis because we have a definition. Uh, and, uh, and the other thing I do in my practice is I make sure that we get 
uh, sufficient um, density of volume uh, in our volume scans so that later on I could do that kind of on FOSS assessment if I wanted to do measurements. So, so you don't need to have a dense OCT to just make this diagnosis because this is really a B-scan based definition primarily. But if you want to do accurate quantification, you have to do the proper volume. And that's what I do, Yasha, in my pra practice. I quickly scroll through the, B the OCT volume on a patient. I can tell that they've had atrophy or, or uh, atrophy that's about to occur. And my conversation with such a patient is, is different than a patient who doesn't show that. And, and uh, you know, one screening tool one can use is really look for that hypertransmission. The moment you see the hypertransmission, you're already seeing that this is a patient's eye that's in trouble. So I find that particular feature to be helpful. Any questions so far from the audience about that? Okay. All right, so you know, I'll, I'll keep going. So, so then the, the second portion, I'll just take a few minutes to, uh, to talk about this, so that way Carolyn can go through the real meat of her presentation and we'll have some cases. But, uh, but another thing that you'd want to know, and again, why are we talking, you know, we, we, we think it's going to be important for all of us to be able to diagnose GA reliably. But then, uh, you know, another thing you might want to know is, uh, is something about, well, how fast is atrophy going to get worse, right? So when we talk about treatments and we think about all of us are going to have to start selecting the right patients, probably it makes sense somebody who's getting worse faster, one, I want to tell them that, and two, maybe that's the kind of patient one might want to select. And so, so we're fortunate now that a number of risk factors have been identified for GA progression. These aren't the only ones. Um, we highlighted the ones on easily accessible imaging tools uh, for us. There are others, like for example, OCT angiography and the status of the Cori capillaris that we're not going to talk about in this symposium, in large part because most of us don't do OCT angiography routinely for modern these patients. So let's focus on, on the technologies that I've just highlighted, which, which most people have access to, especially, obviously, OCT. And so I'll start first, though, with fundus autofluorescence, um, uh, which highlights, which is, which is a nice tool, uh, I think, for, again, you don't, for these determinations, obviously, you don't need fundus autofluorescence. You can do this with your examination. Uh, but, uh, but larger lesions and, and mul we call multifocal lesions grow faster. Multifocal means it's not just one patch of atrophy. There are multiple foci of atrophy. Uh, and there's, there's one sort of obvious reason. It may not be the only reason, but there's one obvious one, which is that GA tends to expand at its border. So if you have a larger lesion, or if you have more lesions, they're going to have a larger perimeter. And so the larger perimeter, you have more um, uh, essentially vulnerable area for the expansion of the lesion. And so those are things to keep in mind. So I get more worried about a patient like on the lower right that has multiple small spots. So I expect them to grow and then, uh, then coalesce. Uh, Yasha already highlighted uh, the, uh, the potential value of fundus autofluorescence for identifying patients who might have faster-growing atrophy. Uh, and, and, and in particular, there's a whole host, this is nice work from Frank Holtz group in Germany, where they identified a number of different patterns. Uh, and you might say, oh my goodness, am I going to have to learn all these patterns if I'm going to be involved in the care of GA patients? And I'm here to say to you, the good news is no, I don't think so. I think that Yasha, the simplification that Yasha advised, which is, do you see bright stuff like hyper autofluorescence at the margin of the GA lesion and, and if it's not only at the margin of the GA lesion it's extending beyond that area from the margin that's bad 
Okay, so a lot of that hyperautofluorescence at the margin, especially if large areas of the margin are surrounded like that banded pattern there, or if you have diffuse autofluorescence that extends even beyond that border, beyond that margin, that's bad. That's really the easy to think, to think about. Now, there are, like, if you really want to get fancy and sophisticated, um, uh, there are patients even with this special type of diffuse called trickling. I actually do look for that in my practice, I have to say, because uh, that's a really bad phenotype. You can see the atrophy isn't jet black. It's kind of grayish, and, and they've got autofluorescence all hyperautofluorescence all over the place. But the reason it matters to recognize eyes that have this additional hyperautofluorescence is that those patterns has been shown to grow faster. So that's the kind of patient you might be thinking about might get in trouble and that you really want to potentially consider uh, for, for treatments. The other things, uh, other factors, Yasha highlighted some of them that might be risk factors for progression to atrophy even, but eyes that have SCD, they tend to, and, and SCD tend to grow. These are, de these are deposits, again, for those who aren't familiar with the term subretinal drusenite deposits, or also called reticulous pseudodrusen, rather than the regular drusen that accumulate below the RPE, these are deposits that accumulate above the RPE. So imagine an RPE in trouble, it's struggling. Well, it starts to eject trash both above and below, right? So that's an easy way to think about it. And these are deposits that are above, okay? So they're not regular drusen, hence they're drusenoid uh, or pseudodrusen. Uh, but anyway, it's a bad sign. And so they tend to have a thin choroid, and they tend to also uh, fa grow uh, faster. So some things to be on the lookout for um, uh, that I think are relatively easy for all of us to do in clinic, not suggesting it's exhaustive, not suggesting it's the only factors, but it's a starting point for all of us uh, to think about the kinds of patients who might really benefit from treatment. So with that, it's the perfect segue to, to turn it over to Carolyn for potential treatment. But before I do that, other questions from the audience, either here or online? I have a quick comment while we're waiting. Um, I have to say that I think OCT not in addition to being a way that we can monitor patients with ge geographic atrophy, either by looking at the near-infrared as well, we can use the near-infrared or the on-FOS OCT, but something I'm going to talk about is that sometimes eyes can develop exudative AMD in addition to geographic atrophy. So with OCT, we're going to be able to evaluate for all of this, all of these. And something I learned from Voss, which he, he didn't mention today, was that when we're looking for that hypertransmission, because there's no RPE and the signal can go through, sometimes before you get to see Aurora, it can look like a barcode pattern. And I learned that from you, and now I've been looking for that. So thank you. Right, Fabulous, really good point about using OCT, this other very important aspect of OCT, especially when you talk about treatments. And we again, remember, just because a patient has atrophy, as we clarified in a moment, these patients are at risk for neovascularization. About uh, uh, 15 to 20%, I think, in AREDs, um, patients with atrophy still went on to develop neovascularization. So it's not a tiny, tiny number. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I, I just want to ask you guys, how do you review the OCT? And I bring this up because one of my senior partners, he only has a horizontal slice printout. And that's the way he reviews the OCT. But I feel like you can miss a lot of information if you're not looking at the volumetric cube or multiple slices. So what's, what's your approach? Well, my standard is that um, I like to get a, a 
fairly dense cube scan. I always look at that and I don't just look for thickening. I also look for thinning of the retina over time. So more blue on the on the scan. Um, I like to do um, multiple line scan, either a 21 line or a five line, depending which office I'm in, and then a one line scan. And I always like to do the longest scan that I can and, I, and with EDI. Yeah, so so I, uh, I I I agree that it's important. A single B scan doesn't cut it. I think you need to have a lot of B scans for. Again, of course, it also depends on your disease application you're interested in. If you're looking for fluid, we've published on that concept of if you do a lower density scan, what's your miss rate of missing fluid and the like. Now, it's important to ask. Well, does that that miss fluid? Does, how does it translate into visual outcomes? That answer I don't we don't have. Uh, it's a separate question. But I would say that it is important to look at all of your B scans. One, I think that from a medical legal perspective, you know, if there's a finding on that was potentially important and you didn't view it and it's a test you ordered, that's a potential exposure in my viewpoint. Uh, and so I think it's important as a clinician to view the data that we obtain. So I think you just have to set up your practice using the appropriate tools, PAC systems, viewing applications uh, to be able to do that. It only takes me a few seconds to view my OCT. Um, and I do it in the room with the patient. Um, and, uh, and it just takes seconds. Uh, and even in a busy practice, I feel that it's feasible to do uh, in my view. Great, thank you. Well, um, I get to talk about some of the potential treatments for advanced uh, atrophic AMD. And um, Yasha talked a bit about complements, so let's start off there. Um, and, you know, we know that from the evidence that Yasha presented that complement appears to play a role in this disease. And there were some first generation complement inhibitors evaluated for uh, geographic atrophy. The first one, which actually was approved systemically uh, for PNH, which is a systemic disease, that's eculizumab, which inhibits C5, um, and that was evaluated systemically for geographic atrophy. Um, but now we're on to the second generation complement inhibitors. And here you can see some of the agents that uh, are being evaluated or results have recently been given. And I, I think that what we have found is that we have been able to modify the natural history of geographic atrophy. And this is really monumental. We have not been able to do this uh, so far. So I'm really going to focus mostly on the first two, pegcetacoplin, um, which targets C3, and uh, avacin captad pegol which uh, targets C5, but there are these other agents as well. You can see C3, C1Q, CFB, C1, and CD59 all being evaluated or targeted in different trials. And I love to think of this as a cascade because, you know, we, we like to simplify things, but things probably aren't so simple. So in this cascade, one part activates another part, activates another part, there's a feedback loop, so, you know, it's kind of like relationships, very complicated, but this gives us multiple places where we can target complement to try to um, prevent geographic atrophy, and so you can see this here, all really interesting. So, um, just to start 
if we can see here, I'm going to talk about Avast and Captid Pegol, and that targets, it inhibits C5, which we can see is just below C3 in the pathway here. And the GATHER1 study um, was one of the first studies that looked at Avast and Captid Pegol to treat eyes with geographic atrophy and did show a reduction in the change in the rate of geographic atrophy growth. And this informed for the GATHER2 trial. And we can see here some of the efficacy results from GATHER2 that treating of eyes with Avastin-Captide Pegol either monthly or every other month reduced the mean rate of geographic atrophy growth and the change in growth of geographic atrophy compared to sham-treated eyes. Looking at adverse events, these were really minimal in the trial. There were no cases of endophthalmitis, one case of intraocular inflammation, no cases of ischemic optic neuropathy. Very, very reassuring safety. Um, what I had mentioned before is that treating some of these eyes with complement inhibitors, there have been cases of macular neovascularization developing. And actually, we know from OCTA, and as I mentioned before, that some eyes with geographic atrophy do harbor macular neovascularization. It just is quiescent. It hasn't started to leak. So some of that may account for some of these cases, but there does appear to be a dose-related development of macular neovascularization in some of these eyes that have been treated with complement inhibitors, although it is relatively small. And all of the trials um, do evaluate treating patients with complement inhibitors as well as anti-VEGFs, and the preliminary results look good. Any comment on that, Voss or Yasha? Oh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a very interesting... Um uh, aspect of these of these agents, and it seems very clear because of the dose response that there is some connection there. But I guess what's less clear to me still is: is it definitely a bad thing or is it a good thing? Which seems crazy, right? To say oh, neovascularization is a good thing. Uh, and so, uh, in terms of it, let's think of it from the bad perspective first. You know, there's some controversy as to is it due to the pegylation? Is that somehow? contributing to the inflammatory reaction to it and stimulating the neovascularization. Uh, but, uh, it, it could, but it could be a different, it could be actually a, um, a, a actual on-target mechanism. If, for example, we know that as Yasha beautifully showed, most of the complement in our eyes uh, is in, in, in AMD pathologies de deposited at the level of Brooks membrane in the choriocapillaris. And if you think of choriocapillaris as the, as the uh, originator for neovascularization, especially type 1 and type 2 neovascularization, you can imagine if you're a choriocapillaris that's weighed down with all this complement, you're like barely able to survive and you remove it, perhaps now you're free to develop neovascularization. And so, so uh, then, you know, I mentioned earlier, we think that neovascularization, I tell patients, is you know, your body's sort of last-ditch attempt to try to rescue the retina, and it's just a good idea but poorly executed, so it ends up causing more harm than, than good. Um, this could be some of that same thing, and I wonder, if, as long as we have tools to, to control it, maybe it could be a net positive. Now, these are all rambling speculations. I want to be clear, because in this program, we really want to stick to the evidence, but, but also just to hear some of the ideas that are being thrown out for how we are trying to make sense of this interesting data. I think this 
it shows us we need to rethink this. And, and so there are some questions we still need to answer about looking at this data and getting further results and looking at subgroup analysis. But I'll just give you my gather two takeaway points, which are listed here, that the primary study endpoint was met with a 14% reduction in the mean growth rate, looking at the slope in GA era, area over 12 months and um, using square root transformation and 18% reduction using observed GA area. And this was statistically significant with a favorable safety profile. And um, there was also post hoc analysis of US patients, which was also favorable. And uh, we'll be hearing more about this. Hopefully we will uh, have some hearing about this with uh, application to the FDA next year. Vasa, I, I know you're going to talk about this tomorrow, but can you maybe go over a little bit mean rate of growth and also the square root transformation, like what that means, what's the clinical impact of that? So, so some of you know you, the, these kinds of terms, and I guess because we're all going to be expected to understand this data, to explain it to our patients, it's worth. Uh, I think Yash asked a good question. It's worth saying a quick word about that. Uh, I mentioned we mentioned how uh, the uh, the the size of the lesion. Uh, can be a significant impactor in terms of the rate of growth, right? Because a bigger lesion, bigger perimeter can grow faster. Uh, and so uh, the, the nice thing about a square root transformation is by taking the square root, essentially you neutralize the impact of different lesion size. So you've converted essentially to a linear measurement. It's almost like how's the, lin the border of the GA lesion advancing. And so the square root transformation is just a technique that's used primarily for statistical analysis to be able to neutralize that impact or variation in baseline lesion size. So, so that's one of the reasons why you'll commonly see um, you know, people who are doing these trials report the data in that way, whereas the, the observed GA area is just like, you know, forget about any square root. It's just this is the area baseline. This is the area at 12 months. What was the difference? Uh, and that's how you compute that, that, that difference. So, so, again, that's why you get the different numbers. Uh, from a patient's perspective, probably the absolute is probably more, more valuable. But from an analysis and comparing different treatment group standpoint, uh, if I'm a regulatory agency, for example, I might be focused on the square root. Right. That's great explanation. There's a lot of controversy over that. But I, that's why I think most people, most places will report both, both parameters now. Um, another agent that uh, we're going to be hearing a lot about, pegcitocopelin, and this was evaluated in the phase three Derby and Oaks trial, evaluated the efficacy and safety of pegcitocopelin given monthly or every other month to treat geographic atrophy. And the phase three uh, studies were informed by the phase two Philly results that we see here which demonstrated a reduction in both the square root analysis and the absolute size of geographic atrophy compared to sham-treated eyes. So uh, this shows the study design. Patients were randomized to pegcitocopelin 15 milligrams given either monthly or every other month compared to similar designed sham-treated eyes. The primary endpoint was at 12 months looking at the 
change in total area of geographic atrophy based on autofluorescence. And there were multiple study endpoints at 24 months looking at functional parameters, um, different um, other things that like patient uh, VFQ25, like Voss talked about, all to assess these complicated patients with geographic atrophy. And then there's an extension study. Some of the key inclusion criteria, and I think it's important to separate these when we hear more about studies with geographic atrophy, there are subtle differences. And I would say in Derby and Oaks, some of the, the key inclusion were that both foveal and extrafoveal geographic atrophy was allowed, which differentiates this from other studies, as well um, choroidal neovascularization in the fellow eye was allowed. In some studies, you're not allowed to be enrolled if you've ever had neovascular AMD in the contralateral eye. And here we can see, looking at the combined Derby and Oaks studies, looking at the primary endpoint, and then the pre-specified analysis of extrafoveal lesions on the right, that pegcetacopeline did reduce the rate of growth of geographic atrophy. Looking at the primary endpoint at 12 months, Oaks definitely, there was a, a change in growth that was not statistically significant in Derby at 12 months, but over time, we were able to see separation of the treated eyes from the sham treated eyes. Can I just make one point, um, sure. uh, Carolyn? So one thing that, that we didn't highlight earlier, uh, but probably is worth emphasizing here, is that about this, this foveal versus extrafoveal difference. So we talked about a different number of different factors that affect lesion growth, but also the location of the lesions can be a significant factor. Lesions that involve the fovea, they tend to grow a bit slower than lesions that are extrafoveal. It's kind of like the fovea is relatively protected and things are rapidly growing all around the edges. Those extrafoveal lesions also tend, also tend to be more multifocal. But in any event, um, you know, that's where, uh, where unlike the, as, as Carolyn presented, the gathered um, trials of Avacyn-Captad um, uh, excluded patients with, with foveal involvement. They had to be j just outside the foveal center, but within 1,500 microns of the foveal center, uh, whereas, uh, whereas, whereas the Pegsetacopeland studies included both foveal and extrafoveal lesions. So it included a, a subset of individuals who are not going to presumably grow as rapidly as their, their pre-specified analysis shows. Great, thank you. I like to think of it that once the foveal's involved, the damage is, is really done. There's probably less, less place for the geographic atrophy to grow. Um, and uh, this is looking at the 18-month results. Again, Derby and Oaks, both studies showed that pegcetacopeline did alter, given monthly or every other month, did alter the natural history compared to sham, and the 24-month results have been released. And this is a kind of interesting way to look at it, that over time, pegcetacopeline treatment effect accelerated, and they looked at the patients between 0 to 6 months, 6 to 12 months, 12 to 18, and 18 to 24. And at 18 to 24, the effect of pegcetacopeline was more notable. And to me, this really accounts for the slow nature not the slow nature, the nature of the geographic atrophy grows, and maybe that hyperfluorescent border we see on autofluorescence, maybe those cells have already been marked. You know, those cells have already been, you know, deemed dysfunctional. That's why they're hyperautofluorescent, hyper and their course is predetermined that those cells will die, but maybe we can preserve the retina adjacent to that. So takeaway 
points, Peg said a Copeland given monthly or every other month, met the primary endpoint in Oaks at 12 months and did not meet the primary endpoint in Derby, but data over 18 months and 24 months in each study and in the combined study did show a reduction in rate of growth of geographic atrophy compared to sham. Also, uh, Pegsetocopeland showed greater efficacy in eyes with extrafovial lesions in baseline, um, actually, and the after baseline disparities were corrected for, Derby and Oaks showed more convergent study results. The PDUFA date will be upcoming, so we'll definitely be hearing more about this and hearing more about how this affects our patients. I just want to go through a couple quick other agents so we can talk about some cases. Uh, these are other agents that are being evaluated to treat uh, geographic atrophy, NGM621, which targets uh, C3 inhibition, different than uh, pegcetocopelin. And the phase one study showed that NGM621 was safe, well tolerated, well tolerated, and the phase two Catalina study is upcoming that's enrolling 270, 240 patients. ANX007, which complements C1Q inhibition, um, also completed a phase 1B study. Those results have been released, and there's an ongoing phase two Archer study evaluating GA lesion growth rate with intravitreal. Uh, ANX007. Changing uh, streams from complement, also other targets that have been looked at include stem cells to replace lost RPE and whether these can support photoreceptor RPE cell survival. And there's really multiple approaches to this. I don't think this is anything new. This has been something that's been looked at for over a decade, but there's many ways that we could give stem cells, whether it's through the retina, superchoroidal, do we give a suspension of cells or on the are they on a scaffold of tissue? Are they autologous or allergenic? And there are concerns about this often related to immunogenicity, but it does seem like, you know, we replace corneas, why not replace RPE cells? So hopefully we'll have some more information about that. Another way we could target this is neuroprotection to support photoreceptor RPE survival, repair mitochondrial dysfunction, or treat oxidative stress, and there are multiple approaches to evaluate this. Um, and there's other experimental approaches beside complement. Modulate blood flow to the eye, give antioxidants, statins, tetracycline has been evaluated, optogenetics, and electrical stimulation. So um, do you want me to show the case? Sure. And so let's talk about some cases, because that's what we all love to do in retina. Here's an 84-year-old female. Vision is count fingers in the right eye and 20 over 25 in the left eye. And she has advanced glaucoma in the right eye, pseudophagic in both eyes, which is good. We know the cataract's not the problem. And she comes in and she says she can no longer drive through a tunnel which can be a sign of delayed dark adaptation. So let's look at the images here from 2017. Vas, you want to um, quickly? So, yeah, so this, this was a very nice case that Roger Goldberg um, shared uh, with us. And I think it beautifully illustrates some of the key things to look for, right? So everyone here can recognize uh, the atrophy. Uh, also, the you know, the image on the left, I didn't talk a lot about. I mentioned briefly about near-infrared reflectance imaging. That sort of comes for free with our OCT. 
but you can see the atrophy can look uh, bright on that uh, on that image um, uh, on the near infrared reflectance image and kind of mirrors the autofluorescence. But what you can see, of course, is that this is a multifocal lesion, right? Multiple separate uh, GA lesions. It's outside the fovea. The foveal center is not involved. And there's a lot of hyperautofluorescence all around. So the fact that it's multifocal, it's not tiny, it's, it's somewhat large, um, and uh, it's got all that hyperautofluorescence would make me worried that even though this patient has very good vision right now, visual acuity, I should say, uh, I'd be worried about, about the possibility of relatively rapid progression um, and, uh, and, and threaten, threatening the fovea and vision loss. And what do you what do you say to a patient like this? We're so focused on looking for wet AMD. You need an injection. You don't need an injection. I'm always really careful when I talk to these patients. What do you What do you say to the patient? Well, um, you know, I I, th I do think that that uh, because we have some information now about different uh, AMD biomarkers that we've highlighted through the course of this uh, presentation. Uh, I do meter what I, talk, what I say to patients differently based on what I see on their imaging. And so a patient like this, where I see that they've got features, and, and, and somebody in the audience mentioned they couldn't quite see what we're describing, so I'll try to maybe do a better job of describing it. But when you see multiple patches of atrophy uh, and you see all that, that bright stuff all around the atrophy, um, that patient, I'm going to say that, you know, I'm worried about your eyes. I'm worried that, that you know, things could get, uh, get worse quickly and, you know, we need to monitor carefully. And if a treatment becomes available, you're maybe the type of patient that I might consider, right? So this patient, you know, in, in some ways, I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys both think, but might be the ideal patient, right, for, for treatment um, in the sense that they've already lost vision in one eye. This eye has all the makings of getting worse rapidly, and boy, it would be nice in terms of keeping this patient functional, keeping that atrophy outside the foveal center. Right. There's a nice, there's a, a an area nasal to the fovea where there's RPE loss, and we see the hypertransmission of the OCT signal, just like you had described. And um, for me, that is a very high risk risk sign. So yes, I like to, I just, I never tell patients this is nothing. They often have complaints and I never say this is nothing. They want, they want you to acknowledge that they have a problem. Is that a question? Is there any way that you could barricade that geographic atrophy so it didn't creep into the fovea? Well, I, I, I think that's hopefully what we're doing when we inject patients with complement, uh, inhibitors or comp drugs that regulate complement. Um, but um, Maybe by laser, I'm saying. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think people have really contemplated doing laser uh, for this uh, in part because, you know, one of the challenges we've seen and when we used to do laser for, for uh, neovascularization is sometimes that laser scar would expand and you'd get progressive atrophy. So, so I guess some of the challenges, we don't, uh, you know, understand all of the mechanisms of atrophy. We've obviously thinking that complement is somehow relevant, uh, but, uh, but, you know, laser really would just create additional atrophy and doesn't seem to be uh, a barrier to the expansion. So unfortunately, we don't have a barricade uh, technique. The only really way is to try to protect the surrounding, the uninvolved or relatively less involved tissues from whatever disease mechanism is causing the cells to die. And so that's sort of the, the goal with targeting complement. I think the issue is also that laser in somewhat 
with geographic atrophy or AMD and the RPE is already sick and uh, would damage the RP. And we know from the laser to Drusen study that if the laser made Drusen go away and patients lost vision. And in many ways, we might not want Drusen to go away. When they go away, patients seem to get atrophy. Yeah, pa patients who, who've been lasered with AMD, uh, you know, they are at high risk for developing nevascularization. Obviously, when we were treating nevascularization in the old days, you know, we did that anyways, but now people have looked at, laser, as Carolyn is pointing out, laser to Drusen. One of the reasons why we don't laser Drusen, even though it ma makes Drusen go away, is that it increases your risk of developing nevascularization, probably due to some microfractures in Brooks. All right, so let's see what happened. One year later, we can see here now, if we compare before, one year later, what do you think, Yasha? Does it look larger? Yeah, you know, I think one thing, it's certainly larger. And there's two things to consider. One is the absolute size. Is it getting bigger? And then the second is directionality. Is it moving towards the center of the fovea? And unfortunately for this patient, it, it certainly is moving closer to the center of the fovea. And I think there's going to be a lot of research trying to understand who's likely to progress closer to the fovea and versus just getting larger. Um, but this is concerning. This is definitely somebody I would think about enrolling in a clinical trial uh, for geographic atrophy. And if that's not available, you know, fortunately, we are, we're getting relatively close to potentially an FDA-approved treatment, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be an option for this patient. And Vas, I have a question for you. Would you call this uh, subdrusenoid deposits or a reticular pseudodrusen? I, I sometimes it can be hard to see if they're adjacent over there, and yeah. I, and I think that sometimes it's because the atrophy grows into those areas or develops right. in those areas, and they go away because you've developed atrophy. Yeah, the, this particular image is a little bit hard. Also, out of you know, maybe you could have told a bit easier on the IR image if the, all the the B scan orientation lines weren't there. Uh, uh, hard to say. These are not. This is not a character. This is not classical. So I, I'd probably guess no for this patient, but uh, but this one is 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 a, is a tougher one than the easy examples we showed uh, earlier. Uh, I was just going to say though, I just want to add one comment to to Yasha. Yasha nicely talked about how this patient is clearly getting worse. Uh, even, even if you're not very experienced in evaluating these patients, I think that was pretty apparent in showing the back the back and forth between the two visits. And that's going to be an important part of, of our of how we manage these patients going forward, right? Because you can imagine if I, my vision was 2025, you're going to inject something into my eye and I'm not going to see any difference on the eye chart. How am I going to tell uh, that that this treatment is that, that I'm not getting worse or I'm not getting as worse as fast or what have you. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you can have a general perception about your vision. That's pretty important. But uh, but I think that having tools like this to track and show the progression, maybe the progression before you start a treatment and then the slope of it afterwards are getting pretty critical, I think, going forward to be able to keep patients and ourselves motivated on continuing treatment for them. So this is one year later. Vision's still 2030, but I, I would be, you know, this would, we had this, it would be difficult to read. Patient's very symptomatic. And then the patient comes one year later. And look at this. We can see that the lesions, those atrophic lesions have really coalesced, sort of the the borders of hyperautofluorescence between those spots has come together. And the lesion is, I like to call this wrapping around the fovea. Now, I don't need a caliper here. This looks over 250 microns. And I'm going to say that this looks like uh, Cerora. Any other comments? No? OK. That the patient's still 
measures 20 over 25. And this is always so helpful, looking at a picture like this to show how this progressed over time. And I think that this is the sort of patient who, you know, who definitely benefit from therapy. Patient still has good vision and we want to keep things the way they are. Agreed? Absolutely. All right, let's uh, take a look at the second case. Um, here's another case showing a different sort of scenario, a patient who came in with wet AMD in their left eye. She's 84, vision's 20 over 25 in the left eye, and we're going to treat that eye with anti-VEGF therapy. But we're talking about geographic atrophy, so let's look at the right eye. The vision measured 20 over 50. And this highlights something that I always have to remind myself. I have to look at both eyes. I might be focused on treating one eye. Don't forget about the other eye. So here's the right eye. We can see the autofluorescence, the uh, near-infrared reflectum on the bottom left, and the OCT. Um, Voss, any comments about the, uh, the imaging here? Well, this, this patient has um, a small uh, patch of... Um, of, of serora atrophy that's, uh, that's nasal to the fovea. But when you look at the fovea itself, also there, there, it, it, you don't see the outer retinal bands as clearly. Uh, and there seems to be some hypertransmission there. So that's kind of one of those situations where I was saying earlier why we look to like to look at all the signs, right? This is hypertransmission. It doesn't quite make it for atrophy because the RPE is partially intact there if you look at the bands uh, but it's a bad sign and it's a it's a it's a negative uh, feature uh, in terms of the prognosis prognosis for this patient long term right almost that barcode and the choroid is so thin so we can see that was April 2017 2050 one year later patients 2100 and we can see marked progression of the geographic atrophy. And really, the OCT, you know, shows much larger area of hypertransmission, really irregularity of the RPE. And December 2019, really marked progression. And, of course, the OCT shows all of this increased signal. So um, what do you think about this, Voss? Is this the typical sort of patient you see with this rapidly progressive growth of geographic atrophy? Yeah, this, this patient definitely had some autofluorescence features with hyperfluorescence that were uh, suggestive. Of, you can see all of that diffuse sort of hyperfluorescence that this patient has. And so it certainly is the kind of patient that you would worry about, about uh, progressing. I think that... The important thing also for this case is, you know, remember to treat the, the left eye might end up being the better eye. Right. The eye with the neovascular AMD until we have a treatment to really treat this eye. And, um, you know, we might have to manage both eyes at the same time with slightly different agents right. and, and uh, figure that out for patients. So, yeah, I, I think that's the critical thing is that, you know, this patient is a good example of, you know, the, the other eye was the one that may be the better bet. And, uh, and, you know, until we get more information, we may not be doing bilateral treatments. Right? It doesn't mean that you couldn't once we, these agents become available. But, again, these are the kinds of factors we'll all have to consider in deciding who we're going to treat. So this shows this rapidly progressive case over time and the OCT. So uh, if, if that being the case, then uh, I think we can bring our symposium to close. I hope that it was uh, valuable to you all, um, and thank you for your attendance, and thank you very much to Yasha and Carolyn uh, for your uh, participation in the symposium, and I hope everyone has a good rest of their meeting. Thank you.